This podcast is generously supported by Themis Bar Review. For more information about Themis, check out themisbar.com. That is T-H-E-M-I-S-B-A-R.com. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I talk about legal theory, or at least we usually do. Um, last week, uh, Sam just took the pot over entirely for some, I don't know, crazy lefty talk with Duncan Kennedy. What was up with that, Sam? I got drunk with power, and I had an opportunity to strike a blow uh, for the left, and I took it. Uh, I mean, I mean, the power you seize there, I feel like characterizes um, uh, the, um, the 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 real understanding of American power relations that you see in uh, on, in American left wing universities. Uh, it's uh, university professors; they really understand the nodes of power and where it resides. And so, in taking over the digging a hole, the digging the digging a hole podcast, you struck you struck a powerful blow for um, uh, for the left. Uh, congratulations on that, Sam. That said, I don't mind you clawing it back and, you know, back in the cage. And we'll let the market decide which one they like better. We'll let the market decide. Um, Who do we have with us this week? Uh, It's our great friend, Julie Souk, who is a professor at Fordham and has a fantastic new book, Imminently Out. Yeah, so that book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It, is going to be the topic of our discussion. I think it's a really fun one. So let's get to the pod. All right, all right, all right. Uh, we're really excited to have Julie Souk with us on the podcast on the podcast today. Uh, 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 Julie is a professor of law at Fordham University School of Law in New York. She was previously the dean for master's programs at, uh, at the Graduate Center for the City University of New York. And she worked with us at Yale last year, um, and we got to see how great she is in person. Um, uh, uh, Souk is an interdis- interdisciplinary legal scholar focusing on women as constitution makers at the intersection of law, history, sociology, and politics. But we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, a really exciting new book, After misogyny, how the law fails women and what to do about it. Welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So it's an amazing book. Congratulations. I think it'll be a big hit. It's a contribution to feminist legal theory, feminist theory, constitutional theory, comparative constitutionalism. And we'll try to hit some of those aspects. But I just wanted to start by giving you a chance to define your terms. So the the, the main claim of the book is that um, you know, f- formal equality can be institutionalized for women and patriarchy formally, uh, you know, legalized can die, but misogyny can continue to do quite well. And it's not as if there's just informal oppression that remains once we're all legally equal. The law has a lot to do with misogyny. In particular, you develop this really interesting theory of how uh, law um, even in you know a formally egalitarian uh, system, over empowers men and under empowers women, and it, you say that's the dynamic we should care about, not animus or hatred. So, could you just did I get all that right? And absolutely. Can you- so that was better than I could have put it, Sam. Thank you. Uh, so what I really wanted to do in looking at misogyny, and this builds on work by other feminists, especially feminist philosopher Kate Mann who I think during the height of the Me Too movement really took a look at misogyny as being at least not only about the hatred of women. I think it encompasses that, of course, and that's the primary manifestation that we think about. But I think that if misogyny were only hatred, violence, and animus, it would be banal without the legal relations that enforce certain power relationships. And that's what and that's why, even though we get rid of animus, I would say that's the primary idea behind anti-discrimination law as the main legal mechanism by which we try to do gender equality in the United States and in many other liberal constitutional democracies. When we do it through anti-discrimination law and focus on animus, it 
formally says patriarchy is over, uh, but there are other p- power relations that are actually enforced by law that keep doing the work of patriarchal gender relations. And, uh, and I think that the way to get at that is to broaden the term misogyny to encompass those power relations. Because really, if you just had a bunch of hateful men or people hating women, it would be uh, banal uh, without it actually having an effect in the world through the exercise of power. And so I'm, I'm really interested, for example, in legal doctrines like unjust enrichment, which focus not just on injury, uh, but on the way in which uh, costs are imposed or sustained by certain persons to the benefit of others uh, and to the empowerment of others, and then abuse of excessive power as an engine that's actually as necessary, if not more necessary than hatred, in order for patriarchal gender relations to continue. So David will get to that, but I, I just want to go back to the, the word misogyny. And of course, if we've read Kate's amazing book, we get this very kind of like revolutionary understanding of it. But why not talk about subordination since, you know, in ordinary parlance, you know, misogyny seems to have the hatred element baked in. And you're talking about kind of social and legal arrangements that kind of are structural um, and don't have tons to do with individual intent. Yeah, that's a great question. I think what I was trying to do was to suggest that the hate element is connected to the structure instead of two separate phenomena. And it was also my effort to understand the just the use of the word misogyny in political discourse, uh, particularly around the time that I was doing a lot of the writing and the research that became various pieces that then eventually became this book. Uh, around the time when we witnessed the rise of Donald Trump. And, you know, lock her up sounds as misogynist in ordinary parlance as it gets. And on the one hand, uh, there's plenty of hatred in that. But the notion that then uh, the appeal of it leads to an empowerment of someone who abuses his power uh, and is not it, that, that it's it's much more pernicious than the hate you might read into lock her up. Uh, so I, I so it was that uh, that I wanted to really think about what are the mechanisms in our democracy or um, anti-democratic mechanisms that lead to uh, those co- like the ease of power abuse that then is connected in important ways to think that that look like uh, that are related to the hatred even though different from it. So it was a real pleasure to read this book, and the experience of reading it for me was at least uh, was it, the way I read it. So I read it on an airplane on the way, or part of it on the on, a, on the way back from spring break, and we landed, and we all, me and my family, my wife and my kids, had to go to the bathroom. So I took my boys to the bathroom, and we went in, and went out, took two seconds, and then my wife went to the bathroom. And I've got literally the book in front of me, and it took her, you know. 20 minutes to get in and out because the line was so long. And one of the arguments in the book is, though, though you don't use this example, is that even without uh, intentional misogyny, uh, uh, kind of in or kind of uh, animus, um, uh, that men benefit from uh, things like uh, kind of easier access to public bathrooms, um, uh, shorter lines, and that this should be understood as a form of unjust enrichment, basically, that men get the benefit of the deal in ways that uh, I get, get, so I had the benefit of, in this case, the free time to watch my kids run around an airport, but still, the, the basic idea stands. Um, could you spell out a little bit more about how, why you're using a kind of a term taken from kind of tort and equity law, unjust enrichment, to understand these broader social phenomenon? So I haven't thought about the bathroom in those terms, so I'm going to have to think about that a little more, David. But I think that the concept of unjust enrichment is very helpful. Uh, And there are concepts that I think we don't really think about quite as much in U.S. law. Unjust enrichment and abusive right are the ones that I think really capture the ideas of over-entitlement and over-empowerment, which I lay out in uh, one of the chapters of the book as being the primary engines of misogyny. But I think that one thing that when I taught the concept of unjust enrichment to students, uh, that it, it's something that's very understand uh, based on our notions of fairness, uh, but gets away from 
uh, focusing on a victim or an injury as being the primary problem, uh, but really a distributive injustice and not just distribution in terms of resources and money, which we often think about in distributive justice, but the distribution of power. And so, and really the reason I was fixated on this idea of an unjust enrichment is because of different ways that different legal orders have dealt with abortion rights, actually, in their jurisprudence. Uh, And even if they're not drawing on the language of unjust enrichment as such, I think the idea of it has really inflected the way that a lot of courts outside the United States have thought about the problem of forced motherhood, which is the obvious uh, result of banning abortion. And so if you think about forced motherhood in our terms before Dobbs, where we thought that Roe versus Wade was the way to think about what was wrong with forced motherhood, Uh, It's like this violence against the body uh, or an invasion of bodily autonomy of women. Uh, And to some degree, uh, I think some scholars in the United States tried to put it in equal protection terms. Uh, And in some ways, that seemed like the wrong way of really understanding what was wrong with forced motherhood. And, uh, And it's not just that there's a violation, but there's actually a public benefit Uh, that we collectively get more citizens who are raised really for free, who are born and raised for free. Uh, And uh, we get more workers in our economy uh, and we get to have a culture of life uh, and the costs uh, and burdens disproportionately fall on the people who can get pregnant, mostly women. And uh, and so I think that that uh, intuition really comes from the structure of an unjust enrichment claim, which again is, I think, less pronounced in U.S. private law than in many other uh, legal cultures around the world. Uh, You know, there's so many ways we could go with that answer. Um, (laughs) I want to kind of just remark that the the kind of equitable justice read of this um, is kind of normatively underspecified because you could imagine some pro-lifer saying, well, actually, it's the pregnant woman who's getting unjustly enriched relative to the fetus who dies. Um, And so we still need some back, you know, we need much more normatively, but I want to kind of go in a different direction, which is, you know, I read this as being more like Robert Hale does feminism or feminist legal theory in the following sense. Hmm. Um, You know, notwithstanding well notwithstanding formal equality that's established like between you know free and equal contracting parties um there's there's you know there's maldistribution of you know power and wealth and that skews the system that's his basic claim that the baseline of the distribution of entitlements can't be taken for granted. Right. And if you just impose formal equality without legally resetting the prior baseline, yes. then you will predictably end up with hierarchy. Yes. Um, and it could even end up as entrenched hierarchy. Um, now, there's nothing like normative about Hale's theory telling right. us like where to set the baseline. But I read you as like Haleian because you're basically saying we can't just strive for formal equality of men and women without inquiring into the baseline of entitlements that will determine what results from formal equality. Is that fair? Absolutely. And it's not just uh, inquiring into the baseline. But then even if you reset the baseline, how is the baseline going to be rejiggered through the institutions that are in charge moving forward? And this is where in the book, I've been really interested in Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is, I think, the most central figure in American legal feminism of the 20th century, her strategy of litigating the equal protection cases to make sex a heightened uh, classification for uh, scrutiny, uh, a basis of heightened scrutiny, and uh, fitting sex discrimination into a paradigm of equal protection as a way of achieving gender equality as being so important and necessary on the one hand, but also severely limited. 
And what's really interesting about RBG and other scholars, including Carrie Franklin, have written about her engagement with Swedish feminism and the debate about Swedish gender relations in the 1960s, which said, not only do you need to emancipate women, you also need to emancipate men because the gender roles that men are confined to uh, deprive men of opportunities to be fathers and caregivers uh, and to occupy traditionally feminine roles. And of course, that was the kind of normative theory of feminism that Ginsburg imported into her equal protection litigation. But if you compare that to how Sweden realized that vision of gender equality, they didn't really do anti-discrimination law until the 80s. It was almost an afterthought. What they did was, um, and this was, of course, not primarily for gender equality, but for other reasons having to do with government and policy. Uh, But their major constitutional revolution was switching from bicameral to unicameral legislature, which then enabled the financing of paid parental leave and child care centers, which did a lot more to get to change gender roles in Sweden, I think, than uh, declaring equality between the sexes and scrutinizing sex classifications in the law, which we achieve through litigation, and not by changing the structures that would enforce the the shifted baseline entitlements. So I thought the discussion between them was really interesting. And one of the reasons I thought it was so interesting was that it seemed like the book was intentionally trying to move away from some of the most hot button culture issues that might kind of surround some of these issues. And so it's um, in, like I, I was thinking as I was reading it that, that law schools used to be a center of kind of gen, like a fe- female led feminist agitation. You have a lot of reports on um uh, like, do men or women talk more in class, or how, why men talk right. more in class? You used to have. A, I think I participated in you, one of those you, studies. You yeah, law, yeah. I, I tell you, I think it's a little hard to imagine that happening right at this moment. That that particular mm-hmm. form happening in the moment, because the energy and activism seems to have moved to other things, um, whether it's transgender mm-hmm. rights or intersection, other Absolutely. intersectional concerns. That there's a little less of this, like, um, uh, kind of uh, structural bias against women as a whole in. Um, in in at least in our in the discourse in the last couple of years, but I, I, I kind of wonder a little bit why you didn't talk about hotter button issues. I think there's a reason that's linked to your discussion mm-hmm. of Sweden. But like you know, there are a lot of things that are going on in this broader space, whether it's like um, social media and fe- teen female depression and kind of that as a, sure. or alternately like transgender uh, uh, women and their participation in sports. Like th- there are a whole lot of like hot button issues that are kind of on the edge of some of these issues that are at the height of our politics. Um, and even in, you talk a lot about Me Too, but like, and like there's a lot of, there's talk about Harvey Weinstein, which is like an obvious like villain, but uh, like less about like kind of the edge cases, like your Aziz Ansari affair type situations. Mm-hmm. So I wonder a little bit about, about why, if you could talk about why like the focus of the book away from some of the like really, really hot button au courant I mean, obviously, you're talking about abortion, which is a big political issue. Yes, but um, but um, but there, it's not it's not the same type of um kind of uh, edge on the left social issue, if that makes any sense. You know, like that. Um, and so, right. like, why you didn't do that? Because I think I think there's a strategy, but I'm just, I want you to say it rather than rather than what I think. So, what do you think? Why? So I wouldn't say it was a strategy. I'll just tell you where the book really began. Uh, It really began probably before I even went to law school. I started law school in 2000. Uh, But one thing that was going on in the 90s in Europe, uh, where I was studying other things, uh, was uh, movements to amend the Constitution, feminist movements to amend the Constitution in France and Germany, which I write about in Chapter 5 of the book. And those movements came even after they had what, what we would call an equal rights amendment to their constitutions, basically a gender equality guarantee. That was like old news. That's like the previous generation of post-World War I and post-World War II constitutions. Uh, But uh, as a young adult, I was observing uh, constitutional amendments to make it clear that you could have gender quotas in politics to ensure gender balance in the legislature. This was like a very hot button issue in the 90s. And it continues to be in Europe because they've expanded the gender quotas Uh, to other domains, including corporate boards. Uh, And now just recently, like a few months ago, the um, European Union just adopted legislation on corporate board gender quotas. Uh, So these are really, and to I guess 
to my mind, this is still a hot button issue, even though not directly so, because the Supreme Court is likely to clamp down on affirmative action, uh, at least in the race context. Uh, but that has implications. Uh, it's the race affirmative action cases that are being relied upon in Ninth Circuit litigation, challenging uh, a pretty modest effort in California law to require at least one woman on every corporate board in California. Uh, so I guess uh, I think there are a lot of hot button issues. You've already mentioned one, which I do actually spend a lot of time in the book on, which is abortion. Uh, and I was looking at that, uh, knowing uh, that Dobbs was coming, uh, but it hadn't quite gotten decided until I was like, until the book was in copy editing. But uh, that said- Good for sales, so, so I, bad for the world, good for sales. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Uh, so I think, but one thing that I think in response to your question, David, I don't think that every hot button issue having to do with gender is related. And I think that's actually really important because I think the focus on misogyny really grows out of uh, uh, political power in the United States having to do with the rise of Donald Trump, the Me Too movement as being not only about sex and sexual assault, but about abuse of power. Uh, and, uh, and I think, actually, the kinds of things that disadvantage women or, as I would put it, extract value from women to the benefit of society as a whole and, uh, and over-empower men, uh, these are actually a different set of dynamics related conceptually through the uh, prism of gender anti-gender discrimination law, uh, but related to the transgender rights movement in many respects. Uh, but I think one of the difficulties is that the solidarity of feminism with other movements uh, sometimes creates blind spots around the distributive issues, the unjust enrichment issues, the reproductive, uh, the extraction of reproductive labor issues. And I think it's really important to see that. Uh, and that's why uh, spending a lot of time on a hot button issue, like whether, like what to do about transgender men in girl sports actually uh, has not much to do with what to do about the problem of extraction of reproductive labor to society's benefit. Does that make sense? That, that's basically what I was, I, yes, yes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, the, the, I mean, I, that's again, I, it, it, the, it has this like, this like rousing call for like, don't forget about this, really. This, this is actually a central right. issue. And some of the other things are important too, but like this is an ongoing issue that I thought was very powerfully made. I guess I, I do think it's important in the context of political strategies and coalitions I think that solid, solidarity across movements does not have to mean that the interests of those movements are always in, aligned. And I think that folks on the left need to be comfortable with that and be able to work together under those circumstances instead of always acting as though uh, separating those issues means um, a division that will uh, weaken all of us. Uh, I don't think it's it always works that way, uh, but I think sometimes we have difficulty moving the needle on certain issues uh, because we're afraid of, that it'll exclude uh, other marginalized groups. That was incredibly eloquent and, and sounds right. Um, I, I want to ask about, I don't know how to put this, the, the, the legalism of the book and the optimism about legalism as a political strategy. So here's what I mean. Obviously, we're all law professors and, you know, you have every right to, you know, write a book about law. But the the book is is based on an insight into the continuing social nature of oppression, uh, which are intractable, at least for legal tools that set out to formally equalize people and maybe um, for, you know, legal strategies that try to reach into the background and shift the baseline. And it just seems to me like I, I come away from American history or the 20th century or whatever, thinking that, you know, class, race and gender, um, you know, it turns out don't require formal legal hierarchy and can last 
you know, indefinitely long, even in a, 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 a kind of a formally legal environment. And so then the question is, well, why privilege law as a tool of transformation, especially when, you know, law generally reflects prior social consensus. And yet the back half of your book, and I'm going to ask a lot of other detailed questions about it, it's kind of like about a, a premise on this optimism that law can 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 disrupt entrenched social meaning. Why do you think that? So I'm not sure I think that law can, but I think we have no choice but to use law because of the way in which law has been used to entrench certain politics. So it's it's a question of undoing, for sure. Uh, and let me explain a little bit what I mean. So if we think about, I think that legal feminism, and not just legal feminism, uh, many feminists think that the law is the answer. Uh, I've spent, you know, my last book was about the struggle for the Equal Rights Amendment. And I'm always uh, pretty surprised when I talk to the activists on the ground, many of whom are not lawyers, uh, the faith that they have in thinking that if we get an Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution, um, all of the problems of misogyny that I describe in this book are just going to fall away. Uh, and I don't believe that that's uh, possible uh, or that's the reason even to make changes in law. However, I think that you do need changes in constitutional law if your constitutional law entrenches uh, a de a de politics that is not democratic and precludes further action with regard to, say, the empowerment of women. Uh, and I do think that, for example, uh, and this is why I'm like so fascinated by the constitutional shift from bicameralism to unicameralism in Sweden. Uh, I'm not necessarily recommending that, although I think it does provide some insight into our thinking. Uh, how do our political structures at the federal and state level uh, entrench uh, the overempowerment of men, uh, among other forms of overempowerment? Uh, that I think are unjust and, und uh, and entrench anti-democratic politics. So, uh, and I think that's actually a really important question for feminism. Uh, and it's not because we believe law is going to solve all the social problems. It's more that we actually have laws that entrench political structures uh, that limit the possibilities with regard to uh, how we evolve those social problems and resolve them. Uh, so I, I think that's what's important. So if you look at, I mean, I have a chapter about the organizing for the Prohibition Amendment. And I think the amendment as law, you could say, was like a colossal failure uh, because the amendment as law led to the birth of this carceral state that a lot of overempowered men then used in ways that was like bad for everyone. Fine. Uh, but what's really interesting is that if you look at the Prohibition Amendment is actually uh, an enabling movement. Uh, and uh, the way as an enabling movement, uh, it allowed women to come into politics uh, and challenge various other things related to uh, drunken husbands uh, that for which the liquor industry was responsible. If you look at that dynamic by which a movement is enabled and a lot of other changes that involve smaller legal changes uh, and social changes on the ground are enabled by a movement for legal change. Uh, I think that uh, understanding uh, legal change as important in that way, where it's not like lot like legalism, uh, but advocating for legal change uh, has all these important effects on what's socially possible and what's politically possible. It, it's so even I'm broader than that. I mean, sorry, Sam, let me just quickly, which is that the income tax comes from prohibition because the prohibition sources <laughs> needed to replace revenue that was raised on alcohol on liquor taxes so the very and the income tax i think you probably broadly say in the terms you're using is a uh, has similar type of effects, right? So it's mm -hmm. uh, tax on formal incomes, not on home incomes. And so that has a uh, home, you know, that would be gender equalizing, I think, across a huge number of dimensions, and it would enable all sorts of social programs. And so it's, I think, I thought that was really great. Anyway, I'll let Sam go, but I just wanted to throw in, there's a, the writing about the, pro, yeah. about the kind of importance prohibition to American constitutional culture is um, really remarkable. Um, and, and there's a huge literature. And so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, no. So I think that I, I wish we studied the Prohibition Amendment more in law schools. Uh, we don't. I mean, this was a literature I tapped into, uh, and it's really fascinating, it, just in terms of the movements 
uh, and the various political coalitions. I mean, it's not a, a totally rosy story, of course, but I feel like we get the darker side of it only uh, often when we study it as law. <laughs> well, no, I loved the, yeah, I was going to ask you later about the prohibition stuff. And, and I, I totally take the point that we should, you know, be fair and balanced. But um, even if you do persuasively to me, you know, reconstrue what, what the campaign was about, you know, as mm-hmm. a kind of camp campaign to, you know, reach into the social background and kind of reset the baseline in just the spirit of your theory, it did fail and it had all these unanticipated, yeah. uh, you know, um, effects. And Lisa McGurr's book, you know, is about the, the war on alcohol, pa- the yeah. war on alcohol is about the paradoxes of a particular strategy. Now we can say that it was well meant, uh, a- as an example of a legalist, indeed constitutionalist strategy to, reset the baseline uh, of patriarchy. But then if we did teach it in law schools, we would need to maybe account for its failure, um, kind of do some deliberation about what alternatives there were to resetting the baseline that didn't incur the state overreach that was its primary legacy and so forth. Yeah. So this is a obviously a huge question. And one thing that I I think one aspect of the prohibition story that we almost never tell that's quite related to something we obsess about in law schools or maybe only at Yale Law School, I don't know, uh, but is uh, Lochner. Uh, if you think about the women's temperance movement uh, as making this shift from just temperance to a constitutional amendment prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol, it was a reaction rather than a positive agenda. And it was a reaction to courts protecting the property rights of liquor industry uh, and giving constitutional status uh, to the right to uh, operate a business and uh, own property, which is like a little bit before Lochner, but of course related to the constitutional conception of property and contract rights in Lochner, and then we get that whole era. So if you see the Prohibition Amendment, and this is why it's not an amendment that prohibits drinking, it's an amendment that really attacks an industry uh, by saying no manufacture or sale, uh, then driving a lot of alcohol consumption into the home where women actually have a role uh, in drinking it, serving it, making it. Uh, etc. So that's kind of itself kind of interesting that if you think of the movement as being reactive because of the baselines uh, that are being protected by entrenched power, uh, I think that story is really important. And if you think about uh, even evaluating the success or failure of prohibition from that standpoint, of course it had all these unintended consequences because it meant building up an, a criminal law enforcement uh, to go after bootlegging. Uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, if you think about it actually resetting the power of that industry, uh, the saloon actually just kind of disappears uh, or goes underground and that therefore takes a new, uh, more gender integrated, although not totally gender integrated form as the speakeasy. Uh, And so uh, to the extent that it resets the power of the liquor industry, uh, and then you have other kinds of things like I think David mentioned the income tax, uh, then I I don't know that I I wouldn't say that it's a total failure from uh, that perspective. I also don't think that the way that the um, amendment was framed, it didn't necessitate. Uh, One of the things you could do was build up a carceral state, uh, but it didn't have to. Uh, There are many other ways that you might have enforced prohibition. And it's also interesting to think, in part because it's so hard to amend the Constitution under Article 5, many people who are unhappy with prohibition did not even think it was possible to have the repeal amendment. Uh, And one solution we might have ended up with was, I think at one point, Roosevelt and others thought that you could just reinterpret the intoxicating liquors language in the prohibition amendment uh, to not include beer and wine. 
uh, and they were going to pass legislation. And once you did that, then that would have implications for what the enforcement framework was going to look like. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think that the whether or not we see prohibition as a complete failure uh, and the repeal of prohibition as necessary to uh, undo some of the re- agreed very bad things that prohibition led to in terms of the rise of the carceral state, uh, I think it's actually a more complicated uh, question. And there are aspects of prohibition success that I think we don't appreciate enough. Uh, and uh, and then even in Lisa McGurr's account in The War on Alcohol, uh, I think that, um, and maybe we have different takes on this, but it's not just the rise of the carceral state, but the rise of the administrative state. And um, she suggests, I think, uh, if I'm not misreading it, that, that be, that's actually necessary for the New Deal. <laughs> Um, also, one other thing about I'm just like because I, I I love the pop Dan Orkren book about it. It's really hard to understand how yeah. drunk America was um, in the pre-prohibition. Uh, they were really, they were, like, like a really drunk country. Like everyone was drunk oh, yes. all the time and really, really, really drunk. Um, and you know, I'm yes. not I'm not I'm not advocating for a return to prohibition, but people were really drunk. I mean, yes. really, that was a wild thing. Anyway, uh, I have a, a a question about how to think about social aggregates. Um, so. I just read the Richard Reeves book about uh, the problems facing American boys. Yes. Um, um, And it had a remarkable statistic in it, which is that uh, the difference between male and female college education rates, like, um, is the exact same or roughly the same as it was before Title IX, but reversed. That women are attending college at far higher rates than men. um, And it's roughly the same as it was pre-Title IX, but reversed. Um, And in a lot of social aggregates, we see something pretty similar. So... um, Education at all levels, women do better yes. than men at, at the mean across every level of education. Um, uh, similarly, well, like the evidence of the COVID she session actually has not done so well yeah. in um, in a reasoning. The evidence that men died of COVID at extraordinarily higher rates than women, yeah. um, partially because of the type of work, partially because of pre-existing health conditions, partially because of other things we don't know about COVID. Um, so I wonder how you think about. Uh, I I I don't think you're going to say that these are forms of unjust enrichment towards yeah, women. Yeah. Um, but right. I um, I wonder how you think about social aggregates where women are doing a lot better than men across a lot of dimensions. Like, how should we think about them in the framework that you set up in the book? Or should we not think about them or what? Like, what do you think about the these types of arguments? Or not even arguments, facts. So I think one of the problems with a purely formal understanding of gender equality without an analysis of power is that um, you just try to equalize outcomes across the board. And I think in some ways that misses the problem of unjust enrichment. Uh, And that's not to say that unjust enrichment should then be the frame to understand every gender disparity. Uh, I think what I'm trying to say is that the kinds of things we should care about if we want to be a post-patriarchal democracy is the unjust enrichment and abuse of power problems and not gender disparity as such or gender classification or intentional discrimination as such. Right. So, 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 so there are a lot, there's a lot in the book about how yeah. formal equality can be misused to achieve um, well, like input inequality can be to, can right. be can, can um, be a, can be abused to inc- further entrench entrench uh, gender equality. But these aren't incomes; these are outcomes, right? So, like, right. Um, so, like, uh, you know, the um, the question of how to think about an education system that produces substantively and continuously uh, um, uh better outcomes among women, you need a story about how to, like, how to think about that. Um, because it's not obviously the case, at least not, that's not the same thing as formal input inequality. It's, 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 it's a fact about the, it's a, right. So yeah. it's a, um, I mean, you, I could imagine a number of types of responses to this fact about the world, but it's, um, it's not the same thing as like the, the like simple gender neutrality leading to bad outcomes, yeah. right? It's a diff- different, pro- I mean, different situation. So I think that every legal and political system should have a fair way of meeting people's needs. 
And sometimes that might mean treating men and women differently. And it might mean treating boys and girls differently so that each group can flourish based on the best information that we have. I think one of Reeves' proposals is to allow boys to start school a little later than girls. Yeah, that's that's because, the, the, right? the big proposal, right? So let right? boys start, boys develop later. Uh, right. And, yes. And so they should start kindergarten a year later, basically. Right. And that's the kind of proposal that would fly in the face of formal equality. And I actually think that's the kind of proposal that we should think about as if it's meeting everyone's needs and not over-empowering any group or entrenching their power, uh, we should be comfortable with that. We shouldn't build up a gender equality law that makes that impossible in much the same way. If you have an area where women are systematically underrepresented in ways that make it impossible to meet their needs, and you can read what's going on in state legislatures that are banning abortion in some of the most draconian ways uh, as uh, a dynamic that comes from uh, something that's politically uh the, the power in legislatures is, sh is shifted in a particular way, right? And I feel like our gender equality law needs to focus on these kinds of problems rather than equal treatment, uh, formal equal treatment, or even measuring uh, outcomes. So the last uh, few chapters of the book besides prohibition deal with things like parity and political representation and something you call the constitutionalism of care, which uh, intends to, you know, shift baselines given the gendering of social reproduction. Uh, and it's all great, but just as a threshold question to get into some of that material, I want to query why you're so pro-constitutional law. Um, we've already covered that it could be cool to move to unicameral system. But <laughs> and I think we, you would have to amend the constitution or get a new one to do well, that. Well, no, but you, no? <laughs> you our eternity clause uh -huh. I mean in the US constitution is is yeah. spe very specific and yeah. it it prohibits um messing with the Senate. And then yeah. don't when forget we look though, at there, the there are 50 states Sam and that one of them is unicameral. So it's worth uh, worth remembering Nebraska. that there are a lot of legislatures. Yeah. Though all no, no, but I'm just talking. Well. We're I'm talking about the fe the federal constitution, um, mm -hmm. and so you couldn't Swedenize this country um, except <laughs> it, I love in, that. in some states. Verb. But but I'm uh, then we turn to parity, and on, mm -hmm. on your account, you know, which is a really interesting French story. There's a statute passed. Um, in a French election well, law that requires parity. And then you had to have a constitutional battle sort of for no good reason. And then well, we the get to the reason. constitutionalism of care and like, why not just have a statutory order of care? So like explain yeah. why we should have constitutional law if our project is uh, post-patriarchal democracy. Well, like the story with prohibition, a lot of the constitutional amendments that I'm talking about in the book are reactive. So gender quotas in France, they passed, there was a pretty modest one that was initially passed that was just, that would require at least 20% women in certain municipal bodies that exercised power. And the constitutional council, the constitutional court in France struck it down. I know, that's, that's my why. point. That's my point. Right. You know, why bother? But that the, the amendment was a reaction to that. Because, But of course, if the court hadn't struck it down in Spain, the constitutional court didn't strike it down. And they've just had lots of statutes uh, requiring gender balance in the exercise of power in various domains. So I think it largely... Part of the story is it's re, it's a reaction to, I mean, why is there a discussion of constitutional amendments? Or actually, we don't even discuss uh, at the federal level having a constitutional amendment to explicitly protect the abortion, right? Uh, but that would be a rational response to the Dobbs decision. Uh, but it wouldn't be something that uh, if you were starting from scratch, you would have it unless you feared powerful courts uh, striking things down. So I, so I, in some ways, my focus on constitutionalism in the second half of the book is uh, reactive, or I'm looking at the ways in which women have reacted to courts. And it's not just courts reacted to previous constitutions as well. The constitutionalism of care, the really interesting example is Ireland. And it's because in Ireland, they did something which I th think is super interesting in 1937, when patriarchy was the social norm, 
Uh, But in that 1937 constitution, they wrote a clause that says the state recognizes that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. And that's an amazing clause because it's right there constitutionally acknowledging the unjust enrichment dynamic that I've been talking about, which is the state gets the common good from reproductive work within the home. Uh, And we're going to recognize that and make sure. And then the second part of that provision uh, says, uh, and therefore, uh, women should not be forced or mothers shall not be forced by economic necessity to work. Uh, And uh, and so this is, I think, a really important way of acknowledging reproductive labor as having a common good that then can can structure or direct uh, public policy. Uh, and right now in uh, Ireland, they've been struggling for the last 10 years about what to do about this clause because it seems so patriarchal uh, and gender stereotyping. Uh, but uh, even uh, proponents of gender equality have been resistant to just wiping it out uh, because they think the acknowledgement of care uh, as something that provides the state with value is important. Uh, And so now the proposal that's going to get worked out over the summer this year, and I had to finish this book before all of this was worked out, but they did have a citizens assembly, which is also an innovative democratic process uh, to gauge public opinion on this question. Uh, It looks like the proposals will be to replace that clause with uh, a clause that values care Uh, in a more gender neutral way, values care within and outside of the home. And they're working on different language propositions that would not say woman in the home. Uh, And I think that's actually really important. Now, if they hadn't written it in a patriarchal way in 1937, would we need a constitutional amendment? Probably not. They could just write statutes that value care. Uh, But I think often uh, if you have constitutional entrenchment, either in the text of a gender stereotype uh, or uh, constitutional or Supreme Court decisions that shut down certain political avenues or make them more difficult, uh, I think that's when constitutional change becomes important. And I think uh, I'm not saying that if we were starting from scratch, uh, it would all have to be constitutional. Uh, and I certainly don't want to suggest it would have to be constitutional in a way that we usually understand it, which is you, you like write it and then hand it over to the sitting Supreme Court to figure out what to do with it. Uh, for obvious reasons, that could be a real disaster. Uh, but I do think that sometimes the amendments become necessary because of what has been entrenched or decided by courts before. I, I totally appreciate that answer. And it sounds right. I mean, as a last question, you know, because I did really love the material on Ireland, uh, as well as Germany, which figures in that chapter and the way the book concludes with kind of citizens trying to take more ownership in a very different moment of their legal order. But I guess I, you know, I once wrote about the Irish constitution in a book called Christian Human Rights. And it's a really fascinating thing that De Valera kind of gets, uh, basically to consult, you know, the, the Catholic church and, um, trash the secular constitution uh, of the Irish free state and kind of invent Christian democracy, which was strongly maternalist. Um, and fascism was too. Um, I mean, not the Weimar constitution, but, you know, Christian democratic constitutionalism kind of owed a lot in, in post-war West Germany to fascist maternalism. So I guess I, I guess I was, I, I, I'm just looking for help in how to read the story you tell, because it seems like you're saying, isn't it great that Christian Democrats and fascists were just so openly maternalist that they recognized kind of the way in which social production relies on women. And we can work with that Um, in part by saying like in a better, um, you know, gender order, we would distribute, um, social reproduction in a more egalitarian way, but without suppressing how kind of historically central women have been to that uh, task. Is that where you're going with this? Um, Or am am I kind of misunderstanding um, kind of like the the prominence you're giving to Christian democratic slash fascist maternalism in in that chapter? So I think studying feminism or the women's rights movement in the United States and in European countries, 
One thing that one's really struck by, and I think this narrative really dominated the way we talked about the centennial of the 19th Amendment, is that all of the advances in women's rights have this real um, dark side with regard to uh, the way in which to make the 19th Amendment uh, white supremacy and people who wanted white women to vote to uh, dilute or negate the black male vote, that that was part of the story of uh, feminist progress in the United States. Uh, and there are different ways that we've tried to grapple with that in the United States. And I think similarly, uh, whether at Weimar or in later periods of constitution making in various European countries, uh, you see uh, equal rights between women and men and provisions that protect motherhood uh, that uh, emerge as a coalition between Christian democratic parties as well as farther right-wing uh, and fascist uh, parties, uh, as well as the socialist and communist left. And, um, and so this is actually a really difficult question because, uh, and I think it might maybe goes to your previous question about constitutionalism, because it does seem like anytime you're going to get constitutional change, the kind of consensus required uh, to move in that way, uh, you can't imagine it happening in the United States without bringing on the white supremacists uh, and Christian fascists. Uh, and I think that was true in many places that we consider our pure democracies. And, uh, and so it's very hard to know, like, how do you tell a story that's hopeful uh, when that's just a fact that you shouldn't try to uh, repress? On the other hand, I think one of the difficulties that ails our politics is that uh, we have a lot of, we don't have coalitional <laughs> democracy uh, and uh, people are not good at making compromises with people uh, with whom they disagree and have radically different worldviews from. Uh, and I think that's one story of polarization. And part of that story is also structural. Uh, that is uh, the way in which we've structured our politics and the two-party system. I mean, so there's, there's many more layers that I, I haven't gotten into. Uh, but I think fundamentally, uh, one thing that is really difficult for some of the material that's in this book and how we try to tell a hopeful story moving forward uh, is how do we engage people uh, who we sometimes feel we really shouldn't tolerate uh, within our politics. Well, there's a lot here um, and a lot of some broad themes we've gotten to at the end, uh, which is really terrific. Um, the book is After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. The author is Julie Sook. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. <laughs>